people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, today on Kidney Talk, we're going to be talking about uh, something many patients may not have heard of, and it's called the Dialysis Outcomes Practice Patterns. And this is a study that goes worldwide among many countries. And uh, today we have Ron Pisoni who's a senior research scientist, and Doug Fuller, who is also a research analyst uh, with uh, the DOPS program, because that's what we refer to, and they're going to tell us a little bit about it. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lori. It's a it's, it's great honor to have this opportunity and, um, and, and uh, uh, for, for Doug and I. Yeah, hello. <laughs> hey. So tell us what DOPS is, and I tried to explain it in the intro, but maybe you could do a better job than I did. Yeah, so the Dialysis Outcomes and Practice Pattern Study has been ongoing since 1996, and it's a study looking at the relationship between dialysis practices and outcomes, and it's, it's across over 12 countries, and we've published over 150 papers during that time, providing results on a lot of different aspects of patient care. And Doug, would you want to you know, provide a, a, some additional details? Yeah, we, uh, within each country, we sample dialysis facilities uh, in a representative manner so that we can provide nationally representative statistics on uh, dialysis patients in those countries. We basically try to identify practice patterns that differ between facilities and how those impact on patient outcomes. So like in one facility, you might have, you know, a dozen patients or so in this study that's worldwide. And then uh, what do you look at um, as far as what does practice patterns mean? Well, for example, in some facilities, the practice may be to use certain medications more liberally than others. Other facility practices might include exercise programs, uh, nutritional programs, or um, you know, other affiliated care uh, providers, social workers, and so forth. And so, Laurie, it's really across the whole spectrum of dialysis care and practice, so really across, you know, all kinds of aspects of dialysis treatment, from the dialysate solutions that are used, you know, to the uh, the length of the sessions, you know, vascular access and and pre-SRD care and so on. Well, you know, I think what's interesting, too, is because when you're using multiple facilities across the world, you then compare one facility and their outcomes with other facilities. So you can see, well, wow, this this facility in Michigan is having great outcomes. And then look at their practice patterns, and that helps develop care trends in, you know, for care. Yeah, so what, what we do in our, in our analyses then are, are to group facilities into different groupings. So, for instance, facilities that may provide shorter treatment times versus facilities that provide longer treatment times. And and then we do that within and across countries, and so that we then can see average effects across countries. And then we can also look at that within country as well. A great strength of the study being an international study is that 
practices in other countries can really, uh, practices can greatly differ across countries. And so in some countries where fistula use, for instance, was very, uh, is very high, for instance, in Japan, where about 90% of the patients are using a fistula, um, it, it helps us then to look at what are the outcomes then in that setting where fistula use might be very high, uh, whereas in another country or in other facilities, it may be very low. And so it, this kind of variability in practice across countries has really provided a lot of um, opportunities for being able to describe, you know, the, the best practices associated with the best outcomes for patients. Well, that's amazing, 90% fistulas. And do they know why that's happening, or is that just because they get early referrals? Or, um, I mean, did any of your studies that you have uh, written conclude why they have 90% fistulas? You know, I, I think the sense that we have is it's just it's, it's developed as a real, uh, as part of the culture of the dialysis practice culture in Japan of the fistulas as being the best access for patients. And so it's, it's very much uh, a part of the dialysis practice culture, if, if you will. And even in, in Japan, um, uh, uh, there are a substantial fraction of the nephrologists themselves uh, create a, an AV fistula for a patient. And, and so um, um, our sense is that that's an that's, uh, important aspect of that. That's interesting. They're not, they don't have to go to the vascular surgeon. They just have the access done by their nephrologist. So their care is not as fragmented. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's not the case for all of the uh, facilities, but certainly, you know, for a good number of them, that's the case. And, you know, another, uh, I think, important aspect of our study, though, is that we also look at a lot of um, patient self-reported outcomes. Um, so we um, collect um, a lot of data on the, you know, the uh, kidney disease quality of life instrument, and we've published quite extensively regarding, for instance, physical exercise and physical activity with, with outcomes, sleep quality, um, whether uh, patients are bother, uh, bothered by a poor appetite or not, uh, depression, pruritus, patient recovery time after dialysis session, travel time, um, out-of-pocket expenses, and the relationship of your, sort of your social support network and outcomes things like that as well. So not only the clinical outcomes or the clinical care, you know, uh, such as anemia management and uh, mineral uh, MBD management and, and vascular access use and dialysis, you know, solutions and all of that, but also looking at quality of life and, and patient reported outcomes, which we think are so important. In fact, patients' quality of life measures are some of the strongest predictors of, of outcomes for patients, as, as one might expect. Well, one of my sayings is an illness is too demanding when you don't have hope. So, you know, when you don't have hope, nothing else matters. So if the patient perceives that they're doing better or feeling better, I mean, chances are they are going to do better. <laughs> um, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, because I always say, look, if I don't have hope or don't think I, ha if I don't have anything to look forward to or, you know, I don't get out of bed or I don't take my meds. And, and that really is the secret to, um, you know, living with a serious illness, be it dialysis, any other type of um, serious chronic illness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and um, for instance, in, in a recent uh, work that was led by uh, some of our investigators in France uh, in looking at social support, it was, it was really interesting to see where for patients in, in whom they felt that their health really interfered greatly with their social activities or felt like a burden to their family that the odds of withdrawing from dialysis were much higher. You know, I agree as well that 
having hope and and um, and still being able to feel connected to uh, in a good way to family members and and that social support network are, is, is important is for all of us. I yes, we need to feel value valuable. You know, I, I read this article and it's. It's a, you know, I wrote the book called Chronically Happy, and it's summed up, you know, what does it take to be happy? You know, what, what's the element? And it was, it was so clear to me. It says, it's impossible to feel unhappiness when you feel appreciated. And that really resonated with me as a patient because there were times when I just, I didn't feel I was giving back. I wasn't very valuable. I was just a burden. And I didn't feel like, you know, I didn't feel appreciated. And, you know, that causes unhappiness. So I think a lot of patients fall into that category of, you know, they may have lost their job or, uh, you know, sometimes it's an impact on their family life. And uh, and then they just, you know, they, they don't feel valuable or appreciated, which causes unhappiness. And I'm sure depression is much deeper than that. But I like that summation of feeling appreciated makes you feel happy. Now, some of the things that have come out lately, too, is that you measure, um, we, we've just moved to a bundled payment system as of last year, and uh, we're looking at a lot of things more closely because of uh, they're, they're putting some of the um, medications into the bundle. And can you share any of things that you're learning by this um, aspect of care? Absolutely. So um, one of the initiatives we, that we have as part of the uh, DOPS study is it's called the DOPS Practice Monitor. And um, so it's, it's uh, where we uh, provide free to the public um, uh, a lot of the, uh, and this is updated every four months, but uh, trends in many of the key um, clinical practices uh, in the U.S. And, and our data that we display are from August 2010, uh, and, and with the latest update is through December of 2011. So every month we show what uh, uh, dialysis dose is, the trends in dialysis dose and hemoglobin and um, um, serum calcium and phosphorus and PTH, you know, and, and various therapies, uh, ESA use and phosphate binder use and so on. And altogether there are over uh, 800 figures and tables on this website. but. But uh, on the front page and so on, we distill it down to some of the key uh, findings, and, and then there's also a summary of these with, with each update. And so if any of our listeners are interested, they can easily uh, see the site at www.dops, which is D-O-P-P-S dot org uh, slash D-P-M, or just go to the dops.org website, and there's a little icon there that you can click on. And Doug, would you want to mention some of the trends that we've seen in anemia and so on um, and MBD? Sure. So in addition to the bundled payment, there is a change in the labeling for drug used to treat anemia in June of 2011. So over this time period from August 2010 to December 2011 that we've been monitoring this, uh, the, these outcomes, we've seen a, a drop of about one-tenth of a gram per deciliter in hemoglobin. So what does that mean if I'm a patient and I like a 11 hemoglobin? So that would be to 10.9 or what would that, or would it be to 10? It would be to 10.9. Okay. Starting at 11, yes. But after the label change, we saw an additional drop of almost, um, almost 0.3 grams, 0.29 grams per deciliter from July through October. And uh, we, we believe that's in response to the label change on the drugs used to treat anemia, as well as there is a change in 
a further change in the in the payment structure that will be used in 2013. And so by the end of the reporting period, December 2011, uh, we found that the mean hemoglobin level among all patients in our study was uh, 11.09 grams per deciliter, which is down from about 11.5. Well, I know it's been interesting because I know some patients uh, across the country have been, you know, they've been falling lower, like to nine and and uh, some of them have need some blood transfusions. But um, I just think it's really important for patients listening that they need to be their own advocate. And, um, you know, they need to discuss all of the measures. I mean, bone and mineral is uh, basically your PTH level and your phosphorus and calcium level. And uh, are you seeing any new trends in, in, in that management of, of those numbers? Uh, as far as PTH, that's the serum parathyroid hormone. Uh, we've seen an increase in that measurement uh, from August through about April. Uh, it increased um, about 30%, and, uh, but we, we've seen uh, a stable result um, in those distributions since April. And then about the dialysis dose, I mean, is, are, are people receiving more dialysis? Because that is a trend in, in, you know, I'm hearing all over the place, more dialysis is better as opposed to the traditional three hours a week, maybe three hours, three times a week to bump your treatment up to even as much as four hours, three times a week, or, you know, do multiple treatments. Um, have you seen an increase in that? Laurie, in that regard, we've only we've seen a slight increase. It, it has not been very large. So there's been a, uh, a trend of slightly longer treatment times. But it's, for instance, the mean value previously was about 216 minutes of, uh, as the mean treatment time. And now it's about 218 minutes. So it's uh, on average two minutes longer over the period of, of this year. A year and a half. I, I'd like to get go back though to the point that you're mentioning about patients um, uh, advocating for themselves as well. We've seen that the percentage of patients with a hemoglobin, for instance, below 10, has has nearly doubled. It was previously about eight to nine percent, and now it's about 16 percent. And and I believe among patients who are on EPO, it's actually 18 percent of patients now with a hemoglobin less than 10. And you know, as part of the FDA ESA label change, part of that is is for dosing to be individualized according to patients. And as you say, if if a you know some patients may feel differently at a lower hemoglobin than others, and as you say, I think it's important for patients to you know with any of these things to discuss them with their physician and. And if, if they, you know, see a noticeable decline in the way they're feeling or being able to, to climb stairs or, you know, to do, uh, you know, daily household activities or if, you're, or if you're employed and have a job which really requires a lot of physical activity, you know, these are all things that um, are, are really important to consider. And so, you know, to, to really track your hemoglobin levels and, and see um, how that may relate to how you're feeling. Well, you know, I uh, um, received about, I don't know, two units every six weeks for 12 years before 1989. And uh, so I remember really well what it was like to be anemic, then get blood, be anemic, then get blood. And then when ESA treatment came around, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't have to have blood transfusions anymore. And I didn't have those swings. And unfortunately, a lot of patients may not know the symptoms of anemia 
um, like I did so well. I even knew when they were coming on. And so, you know, if you are feeling tired, if, you know, I tell patients, if you're feeling tired or you're feeling different, you know, make sure you're looking at that number and, you know, talk to your, your doctor about it because it does, it makes a tremendous difference. When I was, uh, uh, you know, a nine or I used to get transfused it, uh, it, they went by hematocrit then, and you had to have a 25 hematocrit uh, or below to get blood. And so, um, I mean, I always tell this story, and I'm probably well known for it, but I would drink a big gulp before I had my blood drawn because I felt so horrible. I wanted the blood. And, you know, that was the difference between a, uh, a you know, a good weekend and a bad weekend because I was in my, you know, early 20s and, and, and a teenager at the time. And, uh, but, you know, now I ha- have a, uh, you know, I'm transplanted now and I have a hemoglobin of actually it was 12.4 uh, last week. And, you know, it does, I feel incredible. I, I mean, it just makes a difference. And so, you know, people have to discuss with their doctor and, you know, do what's right for them. Right. Yes. Yeah, I agree completely. So, you know, it is important to keep track of that because uh, if you do require transfusions, you know, receiving blood from another person can sensitize you and possibly cause you to be less suitable for a transplant. Yep. No, I know that one. I mean, I had 100% antibodies when I got transplanted and I had to have a lot of treatment to get transplanted. So my joke is I probably glow in the dark if you turn the lights out. But uh, nevertheless, I'm very grateful to have this gift. and it's not a, you know, it's it's not, the treatment doesn't work for everybody. So I was very lucky that the treatment did work for me. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe the patients listening, will they know if they're in this study or will they know if they're part of DOPS? Well, I, they would, I think they would know because we, we wouldn't know because actually when we collect the data, we collect it anonymously. So um, we don't collect patients' names and so on. Um, but uh, for patients who are in the study, they um, first of all are um, each asked to consent to the study so that they would have uh, signed a consent form to be in the DOP study. And in addition then, if, if they consented to the study, they would then be asked to complete a patient questionnaire. And so all of these results that are published in the DOPS, for instance on the patient reported self-reported outcomes, are all based on patients then who have consented to the study and, and, uh, and are providing this data to the study. So um, we're very thankful to all, uh, all the patients who have participated uh, and contributed to the DOP study. Well, you know, that's interesting because, you know, I'm approached a lot of times and, you know, throughout my life, I'm always asked, you know, will you be in this study? Will you be in that study? And I'm always somebody who usually like, yeah, I've been a lab rat my whole life and I, you know, enjoy helping, you know, uh, improve care. But if the patients, you know, get asked to do a study such as this, they're not only helping others, they're helping themselves because you can live on dialysis a very long time and these trends are going to help uh, healthcare practitioners deliver better care and see what works. Absolutely. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Laurie. It, it really is. It's helping everyone, in, including themselves as well, and hopefully, uh, uh, you know, efforts to really improve care. We think that the DOP study, for instance, helped inform the Fischler First Initiative. We published a paper back in the early 2000s showing um, at that time fistula use was 24% in the United States. It was about 70 to 85% in many, many of the European countries and 92% in Japan. 
and uh, you know, folks at uh, Hikva at that time, which then became CMS, you know, really uh, took this to heart and was part of the impetus then for for, for an initiative to try to improve fiscal first uh, first fiscal use in the United States, and uh, and 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 it's been a, a very organized effort throughout all the ESRD networks and the facilities. So um, a lot of credit has to go. You know, to a lot of people and all the patients as well, but it has resulted in, in certainly in changes in fiscal use. And now, fiscal use in the U.S. is close to 60%. Well, and I know one of the things you mentioned earlier that is very important to patients is drive times. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I know they're looking at that and more information is going to come out, but if you have to dialyze in a center, how long do you have to drive to get to that center? And this information is important to find out because if drive times increase, it's um, it's less likely that people will, you know, be able to get to dialysis or it's more expensive with gas. And it might become a reason for patients not being adherent to their treatment. Yeah. So we can also point out that uh, on the DOPS practice monitor, we show results according to uh, the rural or non-rural location of the facility in order to see how these changes in the payment landscape have affected smaller, you know, more remote units. And hopefully, you know, the patients will eventually, if they can, go on home dialysis, but it is. it's, And, you know, I live in Southern California, so if it's raining, it freaks us out to drive anywhere. But I can only imagine in the middle of winter in Idaho or someplace, then they have to drive an hour in the snow. That must just be... I, I can't even imagine. I, I wouldn't even know how to put a chain on a car, or uh, it just may, must make it very difficult for patients to get treatments. So, well, with the DOP study, so uh, so what's the next step? Are you going to add any new measures? Are you going to continue monitoring? Um, you're going to add any new countries? Is there anything new coming up with DOPS? So, up till now, DOP has been carried out in 12 countries for in center hemodialysis patients, and, and we're expanding that now to uh, peritoneal dialysis patients. In addition to, uh, we also have a study on KDE stages four and five, so patients who have a GFR of you know, 30 or, or less in, in a number of countries as well. So, um, so trying to really look at the whole continuum of, of care, starting from CKDE into dialysis, and not only looking at hemo- in-center hemodialysis, but also peritoneal dialysis. In addition, we've expanded uh, DOPS, which is the hemodialysis study, also uh, into China, where we've had a pilot study, a very successful pilot study uh, during the last year, and and we were just completing a very successful study, pilot study in Saudi Arabia at the present time. And then we'll be expanding to the other Gulf Cooperation Council countries um, in the uh, Middle East, so uh, to the UAE, uh, Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, and Oman. So those are some of the expansions of DOPS, and again, trying to continue to look at variability in practice and outcome, not only in, now in hemodialysis patients, but then also to be able to look at that in uh, patients prior to dialysis. And, then, and that will also help to inform the kinds of care prior to dialysis, which then are associated with the best outcomes once patients do um, start dialysis and, and also the kind of GFR that a person has and, and how that relates to outcomes. That was interesting because there was a study that I saw recently that came out about GFR is that 
there's kind of a sweet spot when you need to start dialysis. You don't want to start too soon, but you don't want to wait too long. And there's a, you know, um, people were thinking that an early start on dialysis was a good thing. And I don't know exactly what the GFR was, but there's been some change in thought that you don't want to start too soon because, uh, you know, the first year of mortality on dialysis is, you know, actually the first couple of months, if you don't have the right access and different aspects of care, you can have a higher, um, I actually like to say a le- uh, uh, lesser survival rate. I don't like to use the word mortality. I like to let lesser survival. Um, and so, uh, well, it, it also in the DOPS, the new things that you're looking at, you did not mention home dial, home hemodialysis. Is there a reason you're not including home hemo? We structured our study, which we call now DOPS-5. So DOPS started in 1996, and we've had four study phases so far, and they each last about three years, except the first one was about five years. But, uh, and now we're starting DOPS-5 this year um, for the next three years. And in DOPS-5, we're, uh, we've structured it so that we'll be collecting data on patients who, who go on uh, onto home dialysis, basically looking at a transfer between in-center hemodialysis, um, peritoneal dialysis, and home dialysis and looking at um, transitions or, uh, between those three uh, dialysis modalities. So we're, we're starting to collect that, which we think it's, it's a really important area to be able to understand and, and, and capture as best we can. So we're trying to do this then on an international level, of course. It will be across all of the countries. And, and it's interesting, for instance, in New Zealand, about 50% of patients are on home therapy. I believe it's 30% on PD and about 20% on, on home HD. And so that's just an example of, you know, one setting where um, they've been able to, to be, you know, very successful at having a lot of patients on home therapy. And so uh, we gain from that in, in an international study like this to um, then to see well, how things are being done in those settings and in those countries where they're able to have higher rates of home therapy and, and so on. So we're very much looking forward to um, these you know, new results that will be coming out of the DOP study, which will hopefully help to inform uh, you know, caregivers and policymakers uh, going forward. And you know, because the best situation is, you know, is finding the modality that works the best for patients, and that then will be associated with the best outcomes for patients. If, if you can really make different access choices or you know, care choices available for patients, and all of the kind of support um, structure behind that, uh, of course, will lead uh, to the best outcomes for patients in a, in a variety of different ways. Well, you know, it's interesting looking at different countries because I know when I um, was uh, competed in the transplant games back in the late 90s in, in Sydney, Australia, and I was talking to patients around, you know, different parts of the world that were from different places and uh, one of the obstacles patients have that have a transplant in this country is obviously getting medications after three years. And we just, I just encountered so many other patients that like, they're like, what? You have that issue? I mean, and it was so interesting to me to see that we all have different struggles in different countries with different aspects of healthcare, and hopefully we can learn from each other to help remove those barriers. Uh, because it's a huge barrier, and I was just sitting there floor, like, are you kidding me? You don't have to worry about getting your transplant meds? I'm like, yeah, it never crossed my mind. (laughs) And so uh, it's always interesting to learn what's going on in other countries because we kind of get in a box and we forget that, uh, you know, 
there's people doing different things than us, and sometimes they may be much better. Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. It's it's really a broadening experience by carrying, uh, you know, talking to to uh, people in, in in other countries, and and I must say, our experience in DOPS has been absolutely wonderful. That um, the various investigators and nurses um, and other colleagues and investigators that we interact with in other countries, they're just absolutely wonderful, very dedicated people to to uh, interact with and. You know, it's it's very much a worldwide community of, of uh, so many people uh, just trying to improve practices as is possible, and so it's and there's so much to learn from each other uh, internationally. Well, you know, thank you, Ron and Doug. I mean, you know, a lot of times patients do not realize that there is so much research that goes on behind the scenes that makes our care better, and. I've been going to a, a group called American Society of Nephrology since 1993. I've been going every year. And it's always so hopeful because there's so many people researching to make our lives better. So from that, you know, thank you to the researchers because you guys are in the back room and we don't see you in, in day-to-day care, but you make such an impact on our care by what you do. Thank you very, very much, Lori. That's uh, uh, that's so heartfelt, and we greatly appreciate your comments. And for us, it's it's certainly a real pleasure to be able to contribute, you know, to, to this effort to to try to um, you know improve uh, care as well. And, yeah, and and we we enjoy doing it. Yeah, remember, you know what? And anybody can have kidney failure. We're learning that, so you might, uh, you know, helping your family member or helping yourself. That's what's happened with a lot of people. They don't realize that they end up it's helping themselves. So, not. Well, uh, if you want to learn more about the dialysis outcomes practice patterns, you go to dops.org. Is that correct? Right. Yes. Dops, D-O-P-P-S dot org. And, uh, and if you were approached by your healthcare professional to be in the DOPS study, um, I encourage you please to consider saying yes and helping future care for people with kidney disease. And um, uh, we thank you very much and have a great day, Ron and Doug. Thank you very much. Very much. It's been a real pleasure for us. Thank you. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 